This is Just the Right Book, and I'm Roxanne Cody of R.J. Julia Booksellers. Each week, I hope to bring to you the stories behind the books, talking with some of the very best contemporary nonfiction authors, books that are timeless and charming, provocative and of the moment. The conversations you want to hear about the books you need to read. How do you tell the real story of a private man living an intensely public life? In the instance of the legendary Paul Newman, you cull almost 7,000 pages of transcripts reflecting Paul Newman's own voice and dozens of friends, directors, actors, and family. Paul had asked his close friend, Stuart Stern, to conduct the interviews over the years from 1986 to 1991, when Paul was in his early 60s. There are obviously an incredible number of dimensions to this story. What to include, what to exclude, how to interpret Paul Newman's intent, and most significantly, how to integrate what Newman himself described as his distinct parts, the ornament versus the orphan. We are joined today by David Rosenthal, who edited and compiled the book, and Clea Newman Soderlund, Paul's daughter, to discuss Paul Newman's memoir, The Extraordinary Life of an Ordinary Man. We couldn't have better guides to have this discussion. David and Clea, welcome to Just the Right Book. Thank you for having us. Thank you so much for having us. Clea, let's start with the source. Your father had burned the audio tapes, but kept the transcripts. And, you know, I'm curious if your father ever discussed why he destroyed one, but not the other. And did you know the transcripts existed all along? Well, it's interesting. He actually didn't burn all of them. Oh, and they, they were actually kind of taken to the dump with my other sister now, some of them. We actually had quite a bit. The trouble was is that, you know, there were those old tapes, remember, <laughs> that we used to use when you were recording yeah. messages to yourself? So they kind of disintegrated. And they so you could, some parts were okay, some parts weren't okay. Um, so we do have some of them. It's just they're not really very audible. And regarding, wait, what was the other part of the question? <laughs> well, let, let me just clarify something. Were some burned or is that not the case? I don't, I don't know if dad mm-hmm. burned some. I think that's kind of rumor and a lot of people, that's part of the story. I know that Nellie said that she went, she remembered going with dad to the dump and taking some. I don't know why he did that. Mm. It's interesting that, he saved his transcripts very clearly in two boxes, you know, on the top that said PN history in mom's and his storage unit. So, so, and you knew they existed? Absolutely. We knew they existed. All of us had been uh, interviewed. Mm. I mean, I have to say my 21 year old interview was abominable. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> nobody should ever interview anybody who's 21. That's unfair. I was immensely uninteresting. So, Claya, <laughs> uh, so what was it that prompted you? It must have been a difficult decision to decide to posthumously publish the memoir. What What was it that made you pick it up? Well, actually, my best friend, Emily, was going through trying to find some papers and found two file cabinets in my mom's laundry room. And they had all types of the transcripts and many interviews that were done by, you know, directors and friends and, and not his, but all different other interviews. So we knew they existed. We were actually using part of those for the docu-series. And then we came upon dad's And once we found dads and read them, it's very clear in the transcripts that he wanted to dispel the fairy tale Mm -hmm. and that these interviews were for his children and he wanted to dispel the fairy tale. So 
you know, we, it was, it was his words, not ours. I mean, we, it was a hard decision, but it was, but he had already made the decision by doing it. So yeah. we were just following his wishes kind of. Yeah. He let, he left like crumbs along a trail. He did. That's exactly <laughs> right. <laughs> you just had to follow the crumbs. Exactly. So David, how did you get involved in the project? Um, more or less by accident, but... Um, All good things happen that way. Absolutely. I was contacted by uh, an editor at Knopf who told me that they had just acquired this project and would I be interested in thinking about compiling it from all this. He didn't tell me how many pages there were, which mm-hmm. is probably a good thing <laughs> because I probably would have run the other way really fast. But then I spoke to Clea and uh, Lissa Newman at some length and... The deal was worked out. Uh, they, I'm happy to say, chose me to do the job. And then I was given the news that I had, I think, all of eight months to do it with. So that was an interesting, you know, paradigm there to live up to. And so it was. I mean, the the, the blessing of it really was that Paul's voice is so strong and remarkably consistently articulate and funny and just filled with with surprises, really that I wouldn't say it was easy to put it together because the interviews are not really chronological. They they really bounce back and forth. These are two men, Stuart and Paul, who really, I think, mastered the art of free association. And they can go from a story about horseback riding to a story about making a HUD to a story about Butch Cassidy to a story about car racing in the space of about four pages. And mm. It required, shall we say, some some delicate cutting and pasting, to say the least. But the enthusiasm of his wanting, as Clea said, to to clear the record, and I think, I think it's so clear that he wanted this for his kids primarily. I mean, what he wanted beyond that was rarely not not much discussed between the two of them. There was no talk about, you know, any commercial venture on this. Maybe, you know, maybe we should do it as a book, maybe. But the sense that he wanted to put the truth down, as it were, at least have one record of it that at least could be shared with his kids. So, David, one of the things that struck me reading the book, which I adored, I mean, there was a real humanity about it, which obviously emanated from Paul. But it struck me that there'd be the possibility out of 7,000 pages that there could be 10 versions of a story. There'd be a lot of ways to tell a story coming out of that many pages. So how did you think about whittling them down? Did you think thematically? Did you have sort of an arc of a story in your mind and then looked to address that arc? I think that it was more the only way that worked to me was to do it chronologically. Because, as you say, there are so many ways to tell an anecdote, tell a story. And Paul and Stuart talking together certainly tell a lot of stories different ways over the course of these pages. There are a lot of different versions. So I felt part of my job was to put together the best version of various stories, which had the best lines, which had the most credulity, which seemed to have everybody agreeing on the facts. What I did have as a great backup were all the third-party interviews with Paul's friends, with his family, etc. It was a form of, you know, journalistic triangulation where it was easy or it was possible to cross-reference some of the anecdotes that Paul was telling with some of the stories that either family members told or other people in the movie business told and see where they, you know, if they varied somewhere, you know, in a, in a serious way, then you had a question whether to use it or so because, you know, they were all talking about events that were a long time ago. But for the most part, what was remarkable, I can't think of a single instance where anybody really had a major disagreement on how something Mm. happened. Different interpretation of why it happened often, but not how it happened. I mean, Paul's memory, though he would protest so much, saying, oh, my memory stinks, and so forth and so forth. He would tell Stuart, he would tell Stuart, Stuart, you remember things better than I do. And it was clear Paul remembered things better than Stuart did, too, because they had been friends for, for decades. You know, David, speaking of what you're saying, one of the things I loved was the approach that you took that there would be a snippet of an interview with someone, a director, a daughter, 
Jackie, his first wife, or Joanne. But then you'd have Paul's voice sort of enveloping it or integrating it. And it felt it felt very alive by doing that as if you were hearing a conversation between them, which is not how it actually happened, right? It was with Stuart no. interviewing them. Right. Paul, in fact, it's, it's unclear. I mean, maybe Clea knows. I don't know if he read all the third-party transcripts at any time. I seem to have started reading them, and then he sort of, you get from some comments he made to Stuart, he said, oh, I never actually read that one. Because I think maybe he was a little bit, you know, didn't want to read about himself, perhaps, in the words of others, even though he certainly wanted to have it on record, didn't know if he wanted it. I mean, I'm just speculating there mm -hmm. what that was. Paul's voice, and because he's talking to someone, because it was a conversation, it is very conversational. Mm. And I think to capture that, particularly when there were holes in some of Paul's stories, to be able to use a third-party voice to fill in some blanks, as it were, to tell a little bit more of the background when Paul himself doesn't do that, rather than invent some things that Paul would say or try to stay as close. Either Paul said it or essentially it's not in the book except for, you know, grammatical mm -hmm. things and whatnot. He didn't say it in this order necessarily, but the only way to create certain transitions were to use the other people as, you know, members of the conversation. With grocery prices the way they are now, it's really difficult to try and figure out ways to save money when grocery shopping. But that's where Thrive Market comes in. Thrive Market is my go-to for all of my grocery and household essentials, and the convenience of getting it all quickly shipped to my doorstep is a huge time saver. I'm such a big fan of Annie's, and the fact that I can get my mac and cheese fix whenever I want is fantastic. And as a Thrive Market member, I can save money on every single order. On average, I save over 30% each time. On top of the massive savings on each order, Thrive Market has a deals page that changes daily, giving me cash back on so many brands, and they have a price match guarantee. Not only does Thrive Market save me money, but they also save me time. I love the filters on their website and app, they have over 70, whether you're looking for certified gluten-free snacks or non-toxic cleaning essentials, you can curate your own shopping experience with the click of a button. And when you join Thrive Market, you're also helping a family in need with their one-for-one -one membership matching program. You join, they give. So join Thrive Market today and get 30% off your first order, plus a free $60 gift. Go to thrivemarket.com slash just the right book for 30% off your first order plus a free $60 gift. That's T H R I V E market.com slash just the right book. Thrivemarket.com slash just the right book. What are the elements of the story? that would, I think, be a surprise uh, to most is the chronic and deep insecurity, Clea, that your dad struggled with. How aware of that were you as his daughter before you embarked on this project of reading the transcripts? I don't know if I understood it the way that I do now, but he was not he was not somebody who boasted about himself. He really truly believed that he was living a normal life, doing what he did. And he in many ways felt lucky that he looked the way he did. Mm -hmm. And, but, you know, he, he worked incredibly hard at everything that he was successful at. Uh, he had an incredible work ethic. And I don't think he felt that he was somebody extraordinary. And so when he got all these accolades, it, it almost made him uncomfortable. I and mean, he was he was not all that terribly comfortable in his skin until I would actually say after this whole process, which seemed to be very therapeutic for him. Mm. It was almost like self-therapy. And he kind of emerged this, you know extraordinary version of himself on the other end. 
Well, you know, it's funny that you say that. I, I think I had that somewhere in the, in my questions and we'll come to it. But in reading the book, I almost had a sense of a before the transcript and an after the transcript, as if, to your point, he went through a kind of self, you know, self-psychoanalysm and emerged. I almost felt like when I read it, tell me if this is like totally crazy, is I felt like whatever purpose he had in doing it was in part accomplished merely by the process, not necessarily an outcome, the book or even his kids reading it. But he he seemed to have emerged because when I think about his post-transcript life, there was almost a better capacity to appreciate and experience sort of un, uncontained joy. Is, is that a crazy thing for me to have taken from the book? Um, I don't, I don't think so. No. Clay, what do you think? <laughs> uh, no, I, I honestly think that the process of him hearing what people thought about him, I mean, that was one thing that he was very strict on is that if he was going to do these, Stuart was going to ask these people to do interviews about him, that he wanted everybody to be absolutely a hundred percent truthful and, you know, hold nothing back. And I think that when he, and maybe I, I guess he probably didn't read everything, but, you know, I, I honestly think that what he did read gave him a lot to think about. Mm. And I think that the process of, you know, this kind of transformation that he made on the other side was incredibly significant, certainly to his children. And to the people he cared about, I mean, it almost felt like as he emerged on the other end, he worked even harder at his mm. craft. He wanted, you know, he was constantly looking for this elusive perfection in in all the things that he cared about. And um, I mean, he educated himself in everything, whether it was politics, the environment, you know, all the things that he cared about, whether it was starting you know, our camps for seriously ill children, whether it was pursuing the food company and giving back. It, I mean, all the things that he cared about, he put a, a ton of energy into, including being a better and more present father and, you know, an even better husband. I like it, it really, and you felt it when you were with him. Mm. It was amazing, actually. Let's take a piece of the before and the after, because I was struck by a quote from Stuart Stern, his own voice, where he said he used to suffer with the mystery of what Paul thought of him and how he felt about him. And Stuart learned how your dad felt, unfortunately, when Stuart was in the hospital and he heard about or overheard Paul. But, you know, I know lots of people who deal with emotionally buttoned up parents. And it made me think, how was that for you, Clea? Was he as equally opaque in how he felt about his kids or was that how he dealt with the outside world? Um, no, I, I mean, I'm the youngest of six. Mm. So I think by the time I came around, you know, when I was born, he was 40. Yeah. So it was a little bit different maybe for me than for others. But I mean, he was a ton of fun. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I, I mean, he was kind of like a big kid himself. And he always had great advice, but he wasn't he wasn't real warm. He he was warm and fuzzy, but not as present as, you know, my mother was like there 110%, you know, just for everything. And dad was kind of, you know, flitted in and out a little bit. And I, I will say that, that after this period, I mean, my relationship, and I can honestly say, you know, my, the rest of my siblings as well, our relationship with dad was spectacular. Mm -hmm. Truly. I mean, he and I went through 
you know, even therapy together. And, you know, he never missed a single appointment. I mean, he flew in from places when he was working. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was incredible. Yeah. And, and, you know, I do, I thought about this line, people at one point who saw my dad as a grandfather said, oh my God, you know, no wonder things went so well for you that, that he's, he's amazing. And I, and I said, no, that man was not my father. He was a grandfather. <laughs> and I thought about that reading about your dad, that the man that you might have known as the youngest or any of his grandchildren might have known was not the hard drinking, hard striving out there person that he had been decades before. Well, I mean, I, listen, I I certainly experienced some of that, but it wasn't, I mean, it, it was prevalent, but it wasn't, for some reason, it was hard to deal with when I was young, but it's mm -hmm. amazing what you don't, you only remember the good times, right? Yeah. That's a good survival instinct. <laughs> well, and, and also by the time I, you know, I was a very independent kid, so I was, you know, com competing and, you know, I went to boarding school and then I went to college. And, mm -hmm. and so by the time I got back and was home some, you know, after school, tr you know, trying to figure out if I wanted to be a lawyer or what I wanted to do from, with my life, it was very different. Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, I put it this way. I, I remember when I was a teenager, which I'm sure dad and mom, by the time, you know, having all those teenagers was enough, like six, that yeah. was it. I remember him saying to me, you know, at some point you and I will have a reciprocal relationship. Mm. Where you're not just always asking for something. And he, and he said, and then our relationship will become really interesting. Yeah. And it's true. That's exactly what happened. Yeah. When I became interested in him, then our relationship changed. Yeah. So David, you had a lot of voices to assemble here. How did you decide which voices were critical to the story? I mean, I was fascinated that Paul had Stewart interview his first wife, Jackie Whitty. And, you know, that might not have been a logical move. I mean, she presumptively had very strong feelings about Paul, who divorced her, had, had an affair. So how did you pick which voices to give more space to? I think by the importance to the story that many of them had. Certainly, I think Paul was extraordinarily courageous instructing Stuart to go talk to these people. Yeah. I mean, it is it is analogous in a way to always the fantasy of being at your own funeral and hearing the eulogies. And in a way, that's what he got a chance to do, to hear people talk about him in an unvarnished manner. And in fact, having seen at least one of the letters that he wrote for Stuart to give to the subjects, he said, say whatever you want. <laughs> you know, this is your chance. No judgment, you know, really let it let it all out, essentially. Which which takes a lot of balls, frankly, for anybody to do. Yeah. Regardless of whether you're a celebrity, whether you're just a you know a non-celebrity, shall we say, whatever. So, which voices? I mean, obviously, I wanted to make sure that we heard from not so much who the voices were, but what they had to say. That these were people adding things to the conversation that I felt from general knowledge of Paul and having read a number of other, you know, a lot of stuff about him and the process of gearing up for this, that nobody really had said or articulated well. Clearly, somebody like, you know, Paul's first wife was sort of a voice nobody had heard, and not so much. It, it was a really interesting, obviously, tale about her, but also talking about the younger Paul Newman, which really was a bit mm. of a, a very enigmatic subject if you read, you know, lots of the other stuff, you know, that exists about him, because he wasn't that forthcoming in interviews for years and years and years. He sort of elided over certain things and whatnot. He didn't ever, I think, he wasn't a fabulous by any, by any means. But forthcoming, no. So they filled in a lot of blanks in the story. Some of the relatives talking about Paul's parents were just extraordinary stories because not only did they offer real perspective on 
what that household was like, I thought it really created the scene to be able to try to recreate, you know, Shaker Heights in the 1930s. Mm. It was great stuff, you know, talking about the anti-Semitism there, talking about the uh, Newman social status and their own social status I mean, there. thinking of Paul Newman getting picked on for being Jewish felt like something from, like, another planet. <laughs> to think that he was considered, you know, he seemed like he was also popular, but— he was nonetheless a Jewish kid in Shaker Heights and not a big kid. Right. And I think, you know, it's, it's ironic, too, as I've, I've said, that when I was growing up, certainly, and I'm of a certain age, too, when Paul Newman's name would come up over a dining room conversation or somebody talking about films, my mother would interrupt and say, Paul Newman, he's Jewish, you know. Yeah. That's like it was an invariable that this was going to be a digression on this point. So he was pride of the uncles, as I said, in many ways. But the idea that he was so discriminated against, at least by his own telling, and then by the telling, you know, you think, okay, maybe he was imagining some of this. Maybe he was feeling victimized. But then to have these friends who had yeah. no vested interest say, oh, yeah, I remember my mother saying, you maybe shouldn't be such friends with Paul because, you know, they're Jewish and things like that. Yeah. This was—and talking about his father, they, they had to check in under an assumed name at a, a resort in Maine because the father was afraid of signing in as a Jew, that they wouldn't get their room. Yeah. This is e extraordinary stuff. And clearly, it, it has an effect on someone, to say the least. You feel like an outsider. Well, and another effect, one of the heartbreaking elements of Paul's background that I was struck by was the relationship with his mother. And she certainly, to put it mildly, was a complicated woman. But am I remembering right that there was a long period of almost 15 years that he barely had contact with her? As far as I know from what he said, and Claire would certainly know better, I would think from family lore, no, he did, he did not talk to her for about a period of 15 years, that he was finally seemed to express his anger that way mm. toward her because of her possessiveness, perhaps because of her, she was a smothering personality and someone who just wouldn't get him the credit he felt he deserved. She's someone, one of the telling little anecdotes is there where he talks about, or someone talks about, I forget who, she would send him reviews or clips in the mail that she saw of his movies and whatnot and send him the one review that was nasty. Whoa. <laughs> That, you know, and it's just, it, it seems so. Oy. Yeah, it's not nice. <laughs> it's just not nice. He didn't, he didn't appreciate it. Yeah. I mean, I, I know that you certainly met and spent time with your grandmother there, uh, Clea. I can't, I don't know if your memories, what, what they were. I never talked to you about that, actually. I was going to ask her. Um, well, it's interesting. I, I don't have that many memories about mm. her. We didn't really spend that much time with her. I do remember seeing her once we went to Niagara Falls and then we went to see grandma. Mom took us and it seemed like a very nerve wracking experience. You know, my mother was very nervous and you could feel it, you know, when we were driving up in the car. I think I was pretty young. I probably was seven or eight years old, maybe a little bit older. And I just remember walking in and everything in the house was white. And it mm. was very intimidating. And I I remember her being very nice, but I just remember feeling very nervous. Yeah. Time I was there. And it's interesting because my my grandmother's mother lived right down the street from us. So we spent a lot of time with grandma. Oh, interesting. It was very different, obviously, with my father's mother. So, it, I mean, you could really feel the difference. I mean, I used to, I used to go to grandma's almost every day after school when we were living in Connecticut. So. One other thing, David, I wanted to ask you about is, you know, there were definitely dark periods in Paul Newman's life, most markedly the loss of his son, Scott, and his years of, you know, what, I think would easily be called hard drinking. How did you decide how to address those issues? Because to, to me as a reader, they felt very respectful, but they also felt like they were a bit, they, they didn't go as deep and dark as they might have. I think 
they were meant to be respectful, mm-hmm. candid and respectful. I mean, Paul, during his lifetime, certainly interviews I'd read, was very discreet talking about this. He was certainly more open about it talking to Stuart, but there was material, I think it was probably not necessary to the book and the story to go right. to go overboard with this. He was certainly, he even stopped Stuart from talking about certain things having to do with his son Scott's death. Yeah. In terms of his drinking, he was, I think, he seemed much more candid about it in these transcripts, but it was such a theme in the interviews with his contemporaries, you know, talking about Paul, you know, really overdoing it. and uh, Although it times. never seemed to impact his work. I mean, you read about, no. you know, reading John Euston's description of Paul Newman as the most ethical, moral, insightful, hardworking, meticulous. You can't imagine, you can't, it's hard to reconcile that with the case of beer and three bottles of scotch he had. I don't think anybody said anything contrary to the fact that Paul was the most meticulous, hardest working guy in show business. And he was a man also in some of the transcript show who had no tolerance really for other people he was working with on films who were not the same way. I mean, that's... Like Elizabeth Taylor. I I don't know. I mean, there were certain people that he certainly would disdain on, on films because, you know, they didn't show up. They weren't on time. Mm. Things like that made him, obviously, from his discussion with Stuart, absolutely crazy. And, you know, some people are very high-functioning, certainly, when they drink. We all have known people like that. He certainly seems to be somebody—I don't think he drank when he was working or anything like that. There's no indication of that whatsoever. But certainly afterwards at night, but he had the ability, clearly, I mean, by his own description, mm. to drink go take his sauna at five, whatever whatever time he took his sauna and get right onto the set as if nothing had happened. That does take a toll on anybody who does that for, for many years, but he, he compartmentalized his life that way. Mm. It was, you know, he, he did not let it affect his movie making. It's certainly not his stage work. I mean, it's even, you know, more telling there. You can't, there are no, no retakes on the stage work. Yeah. So let's get to your parents' marriage, Clea, because that has always been depicted as a decades-long, over 50 years period of bliss, certainly a fairy tale, but obviously nothing's ever that simple. And their attachment was, you know, visceral, ever-present. And among the quotes from your father was this one. There was a glue that held us together from the moment we met and through the rest of our life together. And that glue was this, that anything seemed possible, the good, the bad, and the wonderful. With all other people, some things were possible, but not everything. And for us, the promise of everything was there from the beginning. Were you as aware of that as a kid, as we, the, you know, people out there seem to see, and obviously the way your father articulated his feelings for your mom, what, what was that like for you as a daughter? Well, it was very clear. Yeah. <laughs> I like the story Let's you tell. Say that. <laughs> I, no, it was, um, there was actually something very, just wonderful about being with two people who adored each other. I mean, it didn't mean that they didn't fight and Mm -hmm. that they didn't, you know, I mean, they were both actors. So they, you know, sometimes the fights were a little dramatic, but, um, (laughs) but their constant just appreciation of each other and support of each other and interest in what each other was doing was there all the time. Mm. I mean, they supported each other through everything and the, the good and the bad and the ugly, you know, it, and it was a wonderful thing to witness. You know, I used to say to my parents all the time, it's really hard to emulate your relationship. Mm. Part of the reason why I didn't get married until I was 37, you know, yeah. because it's, 
amazing to be around parents who, I mean, my parents held each other's hands always. I mean, it was, I mean, I remember when my dad was sick, very sick. And my husband, Kurt, and I went out to dinner with with the two of them and it was raining. And, you know, I was going to help them to the car. And dad was like, nope, I got it. And he had the umbrella and he was holding the umbrella and holding mom's hand and walking her to the other side. It was pouring rain. And he walked her to the car, holding hands, opened the door for her, you know, helped her in with the umbrella, walked her like, Mm. you know, made sure she was okay. And then walked around. It's like, you know, the ultimate, you know, it's just like, I remember watching it in the, in the parking lot and my heart was just, you know, it just was. It was a beautiful thing to watch. Mm. And, and Clea, tell the story that you tell about your friend coming over and commenting on your parents oh. and asking, are they always like that? I love that story. Well, it's, so this was actually really funny. This was my my old roommate. And so Viveka had come over. We were all going, or my sisters and everybody were going over for a barbecue at my parents' house. and. We were all hanging out and, you know, having burgers and doing our crazy preparing food and everything. And as we were leaving, we got in the car and we're driving back to just, we were actually living in my house. She's like, you know, been a very close friend for a long time. And, um, and she said to me, she said, are your parents always like that? (laughs) And I said, what are you talking about? And she said, I mean, my God, they just old hands, they're kissing all the time. I mean, do they, I mean, just, it, it's almost weird. And I said, they've always been like this. Yeah. Did you know? Did you know? I mean, as a it? teenager, it was mortifyingly yeah. embarrassing. Yeah. I was going to ask you that because when you're a teenager, you want no evidence. I mean, most teenagers want no evidence that there might be any, you know, physical, sexual connection between their parents. Well, you couldn't miss it with mine because <laughs> on their on their door. Well, first of all, like when you were in their presence, you couldn't miss it. But also, they had two doors to their bedroom, one with a bolt, <laughs> a bolt. <laughs> they, they had two doors, like a regular door, and then this huge, thick wood door. And you knew not to be banging on that door. Mm, yeah, nobody banged on that door. <laughs> there were no like little munchkins sleeping in the bed behind that bolted door with them (laughs) actually that's a very funny story too I when I was little my bedroom I had a big tree over it and I used to get scared in the middle of the night so you know two o'clock in the morning I would sneak down and I would open the door and I'd sneak and I'd go over to mom's side of the bed and she always was, you know, they were always like spooning together like this. And I just stare like this. <laughs> I, I was, you know, came up to about here on the mattress, right? And she said she'd open her eyes. She said, just feel somebody staring at her. She'd open eyes and she'd see these huge, big blue eyes. And I'd go, Mama, I had a bad dream. <laughs> and she'd say, oh, okay, honey. And she'd pick me up. Dad would move over and I used to sleep in between them. Mm. Dad, dad, much later in life, I was probably in my mid-20s, he said, you know, that's why we never had any more children. Because <laughs> <laughs> you were always in the middle. <laughs> oh, God, that's, that's, that's cute. You know, one of the things I want to come back to, there was a quote from your dad, and this is for either one of you, that what what people were clamoring for was not me. It was characters invented by a writer. It was the wit and ability of others. And this theme, you know, there's a piece about how lonely your dad would be in the midst of New York City with a gazillion bedillion friends, and your mom would be out of town, and he'd be reluctant to reach out to anybody. And this theme of the dichotomy between the ornament and the orphan was, to me, so striking throughout the book. Do you both feel or either of you feel that the process of this 
pro- five-year project, helped your father unify that notion of the orphan and the ornament? I'm not sure if it unified it. I think that that again, this was kind of like a therapeutic process for him. Mm-hmm. And I think on the other side, he became more comfortable in his own skin. Yeah. A little bit of what we were talking about earlier. There was a before and an after Paul Newman after this process. I mean, the before, he always had that wonderful side to him. Yeah. But on the on the other side, it became the only part you saw. Yeah. There wasn't as much darkness and there was so much more joy. It was like, it was almost like he was looking for joy. You could see it just in his face, just experiences, and they could be the littlest things or the biggest things. And he just was searching for joy. Yeah. And speaking of joy, I mean, it, 17 years, he had 17 years after this project, a whole big life to put to use, you know, what what we're referring to as a transformation. Well, transformation might be too dramatic a word, but a definite opening up. And your dad was always known as incredibly generous, but the creation of Newman's Own and the Hole in the Wall gang brought that generosity into the stratosphere. I think I heard or read in an interview that it that the amount of money that's been donated could be somewhere in the range of 700 million to a billion dollars. I have to imagine from what you're saying that that brought him a deep level of satisfaction. The camp, the impact that the profits from Newman's own generated could was that obvious david was it obvious in reading anything was it uh, well it wouldn't have happened yet not too much no it had just started really by the time the the interviews uh, you know ended yeah but clea how was it to you how visible was that satisfaction to you um it was immense he really devoted i mean he continued to work and he continued to do some some wonderful work but his main focus, honestly, was was giving back mm-hmm. and creating the Series Fund Children's Network, which our first camp was Hole in the Wall Gang Camp. There are now 30 camps and programs globally, wow. and we support completely free of charge 150,000 children and their families globally. So it's quite an accomplishment. Well, it's quite an accomplishment, and it's something that he was so driven yeah. to do. The amount of growth that happened within his lifetime of creating more and more camps and serving more and more children. I mean, his his drive was the fact that he couldn't bear the thought of a single child who was living with a serious illness not being able to get out there and be a kid again because he believed it was so healing in the safest environment. And so we we have nine camps in the U.S., we have five in Europe, we have one in Israel, we have one in Japan, and then mm. we have what we call our partner programs in India and Africa and the Caribbean, specifically for children with HIV. Yeah. So as my last question, you know, reading reading this book, I mean, I probably thought about Paul Newman the way most people thought about Paul Newman as this, you know, incredible actor, easy on the eyes. But the picture that these interviews and Paul's and and David, the way you put them uh, together, created a person that I, I fell in love with in a way that you wouldn't fall in. You know, I'm not a person who, like, gets obsessed with actor, so I wouldn't fall in love with him because he was like a good-looking actor. But you so develop an affection for his humanity and his diligence in overcoming adversity that he experienced. So I wonder, David, did do you feel that the uh, book, uh, probably I should ask Clea this, but 
it must have been tricky to navigate collaborating with the family in choosing. I know, I think I read that one of the girls thought it might be a little bit more playful, but at the end of the day, did you feel that your collaboration with the family and the story you wanted to have told based on what you read pulled together in the way you had hoped? Well, I think the the family was extremely supportive of, you know, the whole process yep. of what I was doing. You know, there were obviously at, at some point some differences of opinion of material, but I think their, you know, questions were very reasonable, uh, to say the least. And mm-hmm. I was very willing to to certainly listen. It was their book. I mean, as it were, they are the, it's their dad, their material. For me, I think what, what made the book so worthwhile is too, I mean, I grew up somebody thinking Paul Newman's a great actor and loving his films and loving his politics. In fact, I very much remember his involvement in in the 68 presidential yeah. campaign. and He was the Eugene McCarthy guy, he right? He sure was. <laughs> I, I have to say he was not a Bobby Kennedy fan, it, yeah. it certainly seemed. And he, I think he stayed friends with McCarthy for, for quite a while. He was very politically involved, which to me was a great, a great good thing, to say the least. And it given tons of time, tons of money, it seemed, to a lot of good lefty causes, I would put them as, which is... You don't see people, you know, doing that and doing it without, you know, getting a lot of publicity for it these days. Yeah. So what he felt like, I mean, was this is a real person. He's a very vulnerable person. Yeah. He's an extraordinarily talented person. He's somebody you would want as a friend because he has real triumphs, real pain. Real loyalty. Real loyalty, which was incredible. And as far as, you know, joy goes and that, there were moments of great joy. Some of it, I must say, came at least from my reading of the things in his beginnings of his uh, auto racing career, which were just really getting started toward the time that he was uh, doing this with Stewart. I mean, nothing seemed to give this man as much pleasure as getting behind the wheel of a car at 200 miles an hour and trying to kill himself. Yeah. You know, why is anybody's guess with that? But uh, certainly the pleasure of hanging out with those guys, the sense of the conversations, the transcripts with some of the auto racing guys that Paul, you know, drove with, hung out with, they were, you know, over the moon with this friend of theirs. Mm -hmm. That's somebody they could talk to, somebody that talked to them. It was an incredibly intimate sort of friendship. And very, very unusual. You know, it's what we would say, he was a real mensch, mm-hmm. clearly. Yeah. You know, a very flawed person, as we all are. Well, we all are. Yes. So, you know, I, it was a pleasure. <laughs> Clay, two, two, the last questions are for you. One, one is, what do you hope the reader takes away from this book about your dad? And the very last question is, what was the best part of being Paul Newman's daughter? Um, I think that, you know, basically to to me, what I took away from this book is that, I mean, he was a flawed person, uh, as we all are. And I think the one thing that made me so proud reading about him from his voice was the fact that he never stopped growing. Mm. He never stopped growing. He never stopped learning. He never stopped wanting to do better. And he didn't, you know, he just, he didn't sit back and kind of enjoy old age. I mean, he was in his sixties. He reveled in, you know, I mean, my God, he, you know, he did our town in his seventies. Right. Um, you know, he made Mr. and Mrs. Bridge. He, you know, he did the verdict right towards, you know, the in right in the beginning of the nineties. I mean, he he wanted to continue to push himself, and I don't think that's a bad story. I think that's a really important inspiring. Message. It's very inspiring, and you know, at fifty seven, it gives me hope for what I'm going to do in <laughs> yeah. the next part of my life, right? So I don't, I don't think that's a bad thing. And I would say the best part of about being his kid, all joking aside, is the eyes. <laughs> <laughs> oh God, that's that's great. Well, Paul and Clea, uh, uh, um, Paul, David. <laughs> 
David. And I felt like Paul Newman was with us. I don't have the eyes. Uh, I definitely don't have the eyes. I, I really want to thank, and where do Jewish boys get those blue eyes anyway? But that's that's an aside. Um, I, I want to I wanna thank you both so much for this time. You know, there's a lot in the book we didn't get to. What I had hoped to talk about was the latter part of the title, The Ordinary Man, because I think the extraordinary life we know a lot about. And to me, what gives the book its heart is that it it brings to life that part of Paul Newman that I think either we didn't know, couldn't know, or maybe wouldn't have wanted to know because we like our fairy tales to be fairy tales. So I want to Clea, thank you and your siblings for being brave enough to allow this book to come into being, and David, for your work in shaping the story to be respectful uh, to Paul. So thank you both very much. We've been talking with Clea Newman and David Rosenthal about the book The Extraordinary Life of an Ordinary Man, a memoir by Paul Newman. Thanks so much. Thank Thank you you so much for having me. Just the Right Book is not just a podcast. JustTheRightBook.com is a highly personalized book subscription service. It's good for readers of all ages. We have decades and decades of bookselling experience at RJ Julia's, and they're the ones who are selecting these books. Here's what happens. We get tons and tons of letters. We've been around for over 10 years, and the letters always are a version of this. I can't believe you picked out this book. I would have never picked it out. And guess what? It was just the right book. So visit justtherightbook.com for details and begin your subscription today. Of course, we have a promo code for you. So if you go to justtherightbook.com, use the promo code podcast, and you will get 15% off on your subscription at justtherightbook.com. You are listening to Just the Right Book with Roxanne Cody, brought to you by Lit Hub Radio. The show is produced by Roxanne Cody, Michael Selleck, and Lit Hub Radio. Our editor is Gino Cardone at Pleasant Podcast. The original theme music is by Kurt Feldman. You can subscribe to us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your podcast. I am Roxanne Cody. Thank you so much for listening. And if you have any comments, observations, suggestions, we'd love to hear from you. You can email me at justtherightbook at rjjulia.com.